May the words of my heart be acceptable to you, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. In his book on Job, God Talk and the Suffering of the Innocent, Peruvian philosopher and Dominican priest Gustavo Gutierrez asks a fairly straightforward question. To what extent can our faith in God be disinterested? And if in any real sense, one's faith either is or is perhaps capable of becoming disinterested, disinterested in the sense that one's faith in God has little or no inherent self-interest, that the bottom will hold, that the joy of believing is our cradle, no matter the circumstance nor the cost. Just what might that kind of faith, a faith without need of sight or proof or reward, blessing or promise, what might a faith like that look like? How might that kind of faith be demonstrated in my life or in yours? I ask this question for a couple of reasons. The first is because of what I can only describe as something like a Zen Buddhism meets if you're happy and you know what, clap your hands kind of vibe or tone that emanates from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Here, Paul, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, but most importantly, most importantly, keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Hear that last verse one more time. Most importantly, keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, two things to keep in mind here. Number one, this is Paul. This isn't Jesus, and this isn't Paul quoting Jesus. This is Paul telling the people of the church in Philippi to be like Mike, so to speak. Remember that commercial, Sometimes I Dream That He Is Me? Paul isn't directing us to model our behavior on Jesus, but rather on himself. Paul is the figure whose words and actions should capture our attention and earn our adoration. Paul is the one that we are called to emulate. One question would be how, the other question would be why. Um, In attempting to interpret what is implied here with this passage that we've just heard from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and because to the interpreter, context is sometimes as important as content, the second thing to keep in mind here is that Paul is writing this joy-filled letter from a particularly gloomy, if not to say frightening, if not to say life-ending and potentially soul-crushing place. If the book of Acts is the corollary to our text from Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is most likely to be the case, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul visited Philippi, a Roman colony in the district of Macedonia, after having freed the biblical equivalent of, say, um, a prostitute from their pimp, Paul and his colleague Silas, were dragged into the marketplace, accused before the magistrates as Jews advocating customs not lawful for Romans to adopt. They were attacked, stripped of their clothing, beaten with rods, and then flogged, and then placed in the innermost cell of the prison, their feet locked in stocks. Paul is writing this happy letter to the Philippians in those circumstances. 
Rejoice in the Lord always, he tells the Philippians. Rejoice and let your gentleness be known to everyone, for the Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Imprisonment is not an uncommon fate for the faithful. And our willingness to be imprisoned for the sake of the good news might be a sure and certain sign of a disinterested faith. I'm thinking here of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1945, writing letters from his prison cell. Some of those letters dispelling the notion that the gospel promised any kind of individual salvation. Other letters openly questioning whether Christianity had actually become a religion based on myths about redemption in the next world rather than an ethical tract for how to live life in the present one. I'm also thinking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail, written to eight white clergymen in response to their telling a local newspaper that King's actions in Birmingham were unwise and untimely. King, in response, writing to them in so many words that they were moderates more devoted to order than to justice and that a shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than the absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Finally, I think here of journalist James Foley, whose faith I know absolutely nothing about, if any, but who, according to interviews with fellow captives and contrary to their own experiences, was a man who never lost hope while in captivity with the Taliban. Near the outset of this reflection, I said that there were two reasons that I was interested in pondering what a disinterested faith might look like, but there's actually a third. The third reason is quite simply because I'd really like to know. I'd like to know because I'd like to start wherever, or I'm sorry, I'd like to know because I'd like to start whatever journey it is that leads a person to possess a disinterested faith a faith that might allow me to love others, to love the world, and no matter the personal cost. And I think that if you're watching this video too, that one way or another, that you might want to be on that same journey too. Recently at St. Albans, parishioners began participating in a pilot program called Sacred Ground. The Sacred Ground is an adult formation curriculum that focuses on the ugly history of racism and ethnicity in North America. You'll hear more about new sacred ground groups starting soon. And having completed only five of the 10 assignments that constitute the curriculum, one theme that seems to repeat itself over and over, at least for me, is that when, histori is that when historians say something like, the historical circumstances were such and such, and therefore this or that person, unfortunately, was led to do this or that thing. Over and over again, it is the circumstances rather than the integrity of the individuals or the integrity of the societies in which, there's, in which these circumstances were playing themselves out that seems to win the day. Interests, as it were, political interests, personal interests, enlightened self-interest, perhaps. In the midst of this reality, Theologian Howard Thurman wonders why it is that Christianity in particular and in North America 
seems impotent to deal radically, radically and therefore effectively with issues of injustice based on race. And Thurman then wonders if the impotency, and think about Bonhoeffer here, Thurman wonders if the impotency is due to a betrayal of the genius of the religion or to a basic weakness in the religion itself. I'm not sure how edifying it is for a homily to end with a question or questions. But today I think Thurman's question and the question at the outset of my homily do bear some pondering. Is Christianity's failure to deal with the issues of injustice a people's betrayal of the genius of a religion? Or is it a basic weakness of the religion itself? Taking all of the voices in this very brief examination into question, and over the course of history, I think the answer may be, in fact, a little bit of both. And as to the other question, as to the other question, I believe the answer is yes. I believe that my faith and yours can become more disinterested, which is to say bolder, riskier, more committed. I know I've cited some of our saints, and I, I know that your journey and mine might not begin with imprisonment, but with smaller steps, perhaps by examining whether our pride outshines our humility, perhaps by seeking to understand more so than seeking to be understood, perhaps by increasing our financial and personal commitment to the work of the church, to justice and peace and change, all of that coming at some cost to our lives as we know them. And finally, finally we might ask, not whether it is that we will be safe in God's hands, but whether or not God will be safe in ours, yours, mine, and in the hands of the church. Amen.